Today we're discussing women's career phases and why they often don't fit conventional career models and how that insight can help women with their navigation. Not from a fix the girls perspective, but from a let's understand the challenge and what we can do about it while we fix the organization perspective. Hi, this is Penny DeVolk. Welcome to Grit in the Oyster, a conversation about how we navigate our careers, our organizations, our lives as women leaders. Exploring its challenges, learning from others, sharing best practice, an opportunity to step out of the fray for a bit, to help you tune out some of the noise and tune into being the best leader you can be. Good morning from Black's Club Soho, London. I'm delighted to have with me this morning Aviva Wittenberg-Cox. Aviva is an expert on leadership, marketing and talent management issues. She's chief executive of 21st, a consultancy that has developed and implemented strategies for some of the biggest companies in the world to balance their workforce. Working with Microsoft, Shell, Unilever and Nestle over the past 15 years, Aviva has become a global expert on how companies can instigate and sustain real change. Welcome, Aviva. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. And I'm wondering if we could start off with you telling us a little bit about you and your story. Um, well, I'm one of these mixed up people from nowhere. I was born in Canada of a French mother and a Swiss father. I grew up in Canada and became a computer programmer, a secret not very many okay. people know about me. I did not know that. Um, before re-emigrating to my mom's homeland, I moved to Paris when I was 20, right after university, and stayed for 30 years and founded companies and women's networks there. Um, that brought me into this space of gender balance consulting that I've been in for the last 15 years, but it wasn't at all where I started. Wow, that's very interesting. And also the books that you have written supporting organizations about making those shifts have had a huge impact, I believe. And so I'm wondering, we know that organizations have been designed by men and for male breadwinners, and that we sort of persist in designing most of our people strategies around that. Um, so how we view careers and career progression which is often clearly not designed for today's world that requires harnessing a much greater, more diverse uh, talent, global, multi-generational, etc. Um, and we certainly see women falling out of talent pipelines in droves still. What's your perspective of the career phases for women in particular and how our organizations are designed and our career structures are designed and where the tension is there? I think the issue is that the people running these organizations probably wouldn't agree with what you've just said. They don't think or see that organizations have been run by men for men. Mm. Um, and so they have very naturally... Um, considered that the places they run are meritocracies, yeah. that if you're good, you make it through the systems that they consider to have been professionally calibrated mm -hmm. and very well tested and proven over the years. Um, but the issue is that almost every system in large organizations has been designed by a mostly male leadership base for a mostly male talent um, workforce. And so a lot of the work of the last few decades um, has been beginning to realize that you can't just massively move 50% of the talent into a system 
really that was designed for the other 50%. So whether it's uh, career cycles, communication styles, leadership criteria, whatever you're going to look at, the system has been normed on male behaviors, male vocabulary, uh, and male preferences. And so in careers, the typical upper-out linear sprint um, that I think characterizes still the really successful archetypal uh, executive, um, you know, is very popular and is still sort of the dominant default right. model of what mm -hmm. success looks like. Um, and most companies and most of the executives I work with don't really think very hard about the fact that they tend in large organizations to identify high potential talent between 30 and 35, mm -hmm. and then accelerate it up. Yeah. And they never think that that just happens to be for most parents and almost all women who choose to have children, exactly the yeah. worst time to be identified or not as high potential. Mm. So the four phases that we think women have that differentiate from this very uh, linear, simple system is a phase first of ambition in the 20s. Women today are the most educated, ambitious generation of women the world has ever seen. 60% yeah. of university graduates around the globe. It's yeah. not even a Western story. Yeah. Um, but then I think the more ambitious they are, they ram into the second phase that we call culture shock, yeah. which was when all of a sudden in the 30s, there's this uh, shock meeting of a whole bunch of pressures that they were not expecting mm -hmm. to still exist in organizations. And that's where a lot of companies are still facing retention issues, women either opting out by leaving or opting out by decelerating and shutting down. And shutting down. Ambitions. Uh -huh. um, if companies are onto this, there is a third phase that we call reacceleration, which is usually when women emerge out of this rather complicated decade and survive, they tend to want to reaccelerate careers that were just momentarily um, flexed. And if companies are ready to reaccelerate, then they find that they've got some really loyal talent on the ready. Which brings me to the final phase, which I think is um, post-50s women, which we're beginning to see this massive generation of the first group of really successful professional women who've been working all their lives, yeah. um, reaching you know, ser serious senior levels of power. And it's a time of real self-actualization. We mm -hmm. see uh, women in what I call now the peak career decades. Um, if they've managed to make it through those first three phases, are beginning to really have their mark on companies, uh -huh. and I think pretty soon on the world, too. Aviva, I'm wondering if you could um, expand on the, the wall that often women hit, these ambitious, thrusting, highly talented, aspiring women who get to the end of their first phase. Yeah. What are some of the experiences that they might have in organisations, as you say, that they sort of get caught by surprise around? In most organizations that we're working with now, the bottom of the management talent pool is gender balanced, right? If mm -hmm. not imbalanced in favor of women, there's now a, a real 50 to 55% of female talent, which 
during the 20s, everybody thinks this issue's solved, right? Companies are thrilled. They're recruiting mm -hmm. a wonderful talent pool. They think they've cracked the recruiting issues. It's really balanced. They're performing really well. Um, you know, young women are mm -hmm. performing. So the women themselves think, that's it. You know, these issues are done. I'm on my way. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, in the 30s, what a lot of women don't understand about is how organizations actually work yeah. and how what got you here never gets you there in the next career phase. Mm. And so the 20s, which is a time often that replicates a little bit their success in school, which is work hard, mm -hmm. deliver, keep your head down, um, show up, be rigorous, yeah. um, work around the clock, which you know women do studiously and yes. well is not actually what they want in that next phase when mm -hmm. they start identifying high potentials when they start putting a little kind of different pressure on start which looking is for leadership capabilities much more not leadership just technical capabilities and can you move to china next week mm -hmm. and uh, would you like to head up this division and would you like to go and do this and that mm -hmm. and the other which usually comes exactly at the time for the majority of women that if they're going to have children, it's going to yeah. be just about then. So they're not sleeping through the night and being asked to do and stretch. You know, you have all this vocabulary in companies, yes. stretch assignments yeah. and growth opportunities and all this stuff, all of which is great. It's just a timing issue. And so then women are faced with this choice of should I accept this stretch, growth, mm -hmm. etc., at the cost of what I really feel I should be doing or you know, yeah. giving to my personal life. So the personal life. cost feels uh, very high. The personal high. cost becomes mm -hmm. very high. The negotiations with your spouse, if your spouse is yeah. supportive or not, are issues you begin to discover only after the children are actually there and born. Most people... Um, I teach an MBA class uh, where all of them are convinced, the 70% of men in my class, that they will be fully supportive, mm. gender-balanced spouses. Um, but that's not always how it plays out in mm. the work world. And so I also think it's much the work world has accepted to some degree that women have children and take some flexibility. Right. Um, companies are still a lot harder on men who make that same choice. Yes. And so inside of couples, it becomes a real issue of, unfortunately, not enough collaboration and not enough skills on how to have these conversations yeah. constructively and tends to be a bit more competitive. Mm. Um, and a misunderstanding of roles and things so like that. So that's the wall. Really the timing is, yeah. is exactly wrong mm. for women and young parents generally. Mm. Really interesting. Tell me about the reacceleration. You know, you get through this process and then organizations are able to, you know, take those women who have gone through the filter um, and reaccelerate them. What does that look like? Well, it looks like in companies that are really paying attention to wanting to gender balance their senior leadership pipeline, they're going to be paying attention to how people come back from eventual moments, not of stopping, because yes. I don't think women really stop, um, but of maybe taking a little bit of a back seat or a plateau for a time, and whether they even have that opportunity. So... Um, I was just interviewing a candidate who works for one of the big consulting companies, and she stopped for uh, several years 
over the course of a five-year period to have several children, and she returned to work, and they promoted her into a really big job. That's what reacceleration looks like when it's well um, paid attention to, that she still had that offer on the table in an awful lot of companies. Even the way they're just watching their talent, um, people who take flexibility or part-time mm. or anything. It's seen as a career killer. They're actually dropped mm. off of mm-hmm. the hypo list and they're not managed when they return back mm. in. Co- companies that really focus on this are very careful with the returnees. Mm-hmm. You know, they've already invested often 10 years in these people. So the investment in mentoring, coaching, making mm-hmm. sure these people re-enter right into the right kind of job and are supported and getting them off to a good start is invaluable. It makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, fascinating. And tell me a bit more about the post-50 phase of careers, which, as you said before, is sort of new. Generationally, you know, people would probably wind down their careers in their mid to late 50s, and this is probably the first generation that women have been senior executives into their 50s. What's happening there that you see? I think it's a really exciting time for women. It's much to their surprise, I think, often. I'm, I'm talking to a lot of these women who realize that, you know, come 50 or so, they've hit a lot of their career goals. Mm-hmm. And now they've got to, like, stretch beyond what they could possibly have imagined earlier on. And they're newly freed up in ways they were also... not expecting. So the children are usually grown and gone. Um, Often their spouse is a little bit older and decelerating from career issues. Mm -hmm. So suddenly they have this rather flexible partner who's ready to travel with them to China and Mm -hmm. India and Brazil and carry their luggage. I mean, it's an unexpected flip of some of the earlier roles that some of them may have experienced. And I think it's incredibly uh, exciting to have this time where suddenly your priorities, your goals, how, what impact you want to leave on the world has space and people pushing you and supporting you and applauding you. Um, and if you take it, it's, it, a lot of companies it's are awesome. there waiting for yeah. you. So there's a lot of opportunity at that end. So a lot of opportunity also within organizations, not just for women to go out there and do their thing. Have you got some examples of how companies are really leveraging that uh, those experienced women in their 50s and how they make that work for them? But part of it, you can see all over Europe with this legislative push to board quotas, right, Mm -hmm. has been uh, one of the rather more visible ways we're seeing this whole generation emerge into visibility is just there are seven countries now in Europe that have a minimum of 40% of either gender Mm -hmm. on corporate boards, which has pushed a huge number of companies to really radically ramp up. And we've seen it. The numbers are... Uh, match. The UK is not, of course, in that legislative right. thing, but they've been encouraging with um, slightly more modest targets of 30%. Um, but all of that has created a generation of visible women in leadership roles in on across the business world that's creating role models for the next generation. Now, what I think we're needing to check is whether that filters down through into the executive ranks, um, which is the the next big challenge. We just don't end up with the same women on boards, and uh, certainly the Cranfield data this year showed that actually executive ranks have gone backwards. So that's 
that it's is because, an ongoing challenge. Yeah, because I think a lot of the board w- women were pulled up mm-hmm. from executive ranks to go on boards, and we've got a bit of a, a pipeline issue yeah. now for the next generation. And so companies really have to work on these pipeline issues, which is you know one of the big issues we find inside of our uh, clients is getting women from middle management into senior management. Yes. There's still a lot of work to be done on uh, getting that last phase through. Yeah. And so what do you see getting going from middle management to senior management? We've talked about there's an organizational context, you know, and what companies are doing. Um, what advice would you have for women who are actually navigating that world? I think a lot of that shift is political mm-hmm. uh, and who you know and who knows you mm-hmm. um, and whether you actually understand how your organization works. I think a lot of women are for too long convinced that kind of if they do a good job behind their office door mm-hmm. with the door closed, they're going to get promoted because they're so good and they work so hard. you got to get rid of that pretty early on, and the earlier on you do it. And the more you understand that there is a political dimension, yeah. and a l- I still hear an awful lot of women saying, I don't do politics, mm-hmm. I won't do politics. And, uh, it's um, distasteful, it's, it's not me, it's kind of not dirty authentic. and corrupt. Yeah. And yeah. I just think, you know... Politics is just the relationship between people and humans and how we self-organize and where power lies. Um, And I think you need to learn early how... And I'm always astonished because I have a son who understands this in his 20s and a daughter in her 20s who has never thought about it and probably won't for another 20 years. And why not? Um, Where does this come in the DNA Mm -hmm. that men are so attuned, I think, to where power power lies Mm -hmm. in a room... In, a, in an org chart. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important for us to understand that the, system, the systems we're working in are still run um, on a system that we're not entirely familiar with. So mm-hmm. how do you get familiarity? Well, you get as many mentors as you possibly can, not just one. You get both men and women. Mm-hmm. Um, you really identify people who will help you understand and interpret what the hell is going on you ask for relentless feedback and you're really open to uh, critical and not always very constructive feedback it's a gift no matter what form it comes in Um, I think you know a lot of us still take things a little personally Mm -hmm. um, which I get you know it's really really hard to build all of these skills but I think it is about zooming out and understanding that a lot of this is not personal, and we are still pioneers in mm-hmm. a system that is not even halfway to adapting. Yeah. Um, and understanding that kind of as an interesting scientific experiment. Yes, that you're part of. <laughs> that you yeah. are a part of. You're signed of. up to be a part of. You're signed up whether or not you're signed up for it. And to see it a little bit, I usually, when I'm coaching with women, try and get it to be a little bit more fun. Yeah, to lighten up. Yeah, yeah, lighten up, laugh it off play a little bit um Mm. we often get so horrified at it when it's Mm. it's and judgmental and very judgmental yeah Yeah. very judgmental so aviva i'm wondering if you could talk in your book you talk about the uh, lattice and ladder approach to career progression can you take me through that yeah, so the latter um, version is what I think exists in most companies, which is these sort of upper out linear projection. They're very clear. Um, this is particularly true in certain sectors like professional services yeah. or law. You know, three years here, five mm-hmm. years there, eight years in your partner. Uh, and if you don't map to the latter, basically 
you have to leave because you're you're at fault or you're not a success. The lattice is a much more understanding that people want to wander around, they may have to move transversally and horizontally at different phases, that it maps more to life, um, that there will be life phases that you don't want to drive forward your career at 150%, and there's some flexibility in the system for doing that, which actually is a model that wasn't um, necessarily initiated by women, right? I think mm -hmm. of the tech world where, you know, there were a lot of superstar computer programmers mm -hmm. who didn't want to be managers and didn't want to go through the classic career. And a lot of the tech companies created special career trajectories yeah. for you know, technical experts, technical experts where mm -hmm. they could just be geeky in their, in their office and shut yeah. the door. Um, and I think that kind of flexibility to understand that different people will have different career shapes and have companies that are open to non-uniformity, that there's not only one way to the top. Mm. And if you don't follow that, then in several clients we have, there is one key job. And if you don't occupy that job well, in a time, there's no there yeah. is no way through. And um, that can really hurt, particularly because those jobs are generally at the wrong time, usually yeah. somewhere right in the 30s, in really unfriendly conditions that mm. are going to alienate a lot of the women. So tell me a bit more about your experience with companies and some of the innovative and pioneering work they're doing to you know, get a better gender balance in their workforce, particularly the senior teams. So a lot of the work that we've done and, and kind of I think what differentiates us is, is we're trying to shift the whole discussion away from this is a women's issue, this is a diversity issue, mm -hmm. um, to us Gender balance is a business issue. Mm. Women are now 60% of the talent. They're 80% of B2C purchasing decision makers. They are an opportunity waiting to be tapped and leveraged by smart companies. But I think most organizations still see it more as we have a bit of a problem. We're not getting women through into senior ranks. What's the matter with these poor women? Let's help them. Mm. And so there's been, let's <laughs> fix the women. It's a strategy we're trying to move away from. And we have, oh, we have, you know, we've spent mm -hmm. well-meaningly. I don't mean yeah, to. Very good intent. Very yeah. good intent sometimes. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think a little bit of a fig leaf from yes, the senior yeah. teams. Um, it's really easy to win an award these days, mm -hmm. right? You have a women's conference and you do coaching for women and mm -hmm. you send them all yeah, off to a leadership network. and a yeah. women's network and then you get an award and you're seen as a program. And most of the women inside of all of those efforts are grateful and engaged. Mm. The trouble is it doesn't shift the balance. Mm. Um, and that's a really tough thing to overcome because sometimes the women will argue with you as well, mm. right? Um, and what you have to really differentiate between is feel good, yeah. what I call keep them happy, keep them down kind mm -hmm. of approaches, to actual gender balancing. So actual gender balancing means that your leadership team actually understands why this is a business issue. They're mm -hmm. bought into it. They each are accountable for change in their own areas. It's entirely led by senior leaders, most of whom tend to be men. Yeah. You do not appoint your most senior, non-white, 
slightly handicapped woman to run the women's mm-hmm. initiative. Yeah. Let me yeah. be politically incorrect yeah. momentarily, but this is so all tokenism you see. really has to incredible really tokenism. Yeah. I would and we have to understand that this is an issue really now of in and out groups, right? Mm-hmm. There's a group in power um, that understands the rules of the game and how it works. They tend to be largely male and largely white. And if we want to shift that, we actually need people from that group to lead the change and tell other people in that group how to shift. And it doesn't help having people who are out of power tell the in-group, yes. gentlemen, you're, you have unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. It's time to have a program here. To We're going to tell you all about your unconscious bias, mm-hmm. and then it's going to be fixed. That doesn't work, right? Uh, what works is to... Um, get the leadership teams together, have a really honest, politically incorrect debate with the door closed about, Mm -hmm. is this issue relevant to our business? Why is it relevant? How urgent is this? And what do we decide we're going to do about Mm -hmm. it or not? And they're really good at doing this, right? They're smart guys. Because it's a business issue, and you show them the data, and it's, you know, I have, in my 15 years on this been with one company that after a debate voted not to do something on the mm-hmm. topic and that was only because they had to delay it for a while and that's that's the challenge isn't it with for the last 15 20 years doing the business case and there's not many organizations that are really challenging the business case now but they are stuck with and so you know possibly why the unconscious bias piece where is the second generation bias people have good intent they know this is a business issue but are actually starting to look at some of the less visible obstacles to women's careers. What's your sense of that? I think the move to unconscious bias training for all managers and away from Fix the Women that was only programs aimed at women is a progression of sorts, right? We're at least moving away from that that Mm. there is a systemic piece and that mindsets need to shift. Um, But it's just, again, um, I, I think it's still seeing this very much, so this is my other challenge on gender, is that it's very much seen as a dimension of diversity. Mm. And so a lot of the unconscious bias stuff is about um, understanding your own biases, becoming more aware, becoming more open to other styles, all of which is great stuff. I'm all for Mm. diversity management. But that's not how we deal with the Chinese. Mm. So I, you know, when you're gonna sell to the Chinese or you want to recruit some Chinese, what do you do? You know, you learn the language and the culture of the mm-hmm. Chinese. So I, because it's a huge opportunity. Yeah. Well, women's um, global purchasing power is now more than the sum of the GDP of right. China and yeah. India combined. And companies that aren't seeing women as a market opportunity are leaving a lot of business on the, table. on the table um, and that but it requires a very different frame it's mm. not one minority among many to be mm. managed it's the majority of today's talent and the majority of the market today's market opportunity mm. so what are you doing to address this opportunity who's doing it who's taking on how central so to me it's like um, I talk about the four W's that companies are trying to get their minds around, web, weather, world, and women. Um, There's technological change and the digital uh, strategies that companies have finally learned to mainstream through the whole business. There's the issues of climate change and sustainability. 
Globalization means, you know, is there any kind of nationality balance in your pipeline? Or do you have, you know, is your company run by a group of home country national mm -hmm. men, which is still pretty dominant? Yeah. And then there's women, the massive arrival of women into both talent forces, labor pools, and mm -hmm. client-facing uh, uh, situations is a shift that requires adaptation just as fundamentally as those other three. And they're actually fairly interdependent. They are interdependent. But that's a very different frame of the gender topic mm. than the way most companies and most women are talking yeah. about it. So I think um, one of the challenges is women have to let this go enough to realize we're not going to be able to get this one cracked on our own. Yes. And the business needs to make that shift. And when you see organizations wrestling with those four W's, is there any advice you would have for a senior executive who's wrestling with these things, you know, possibly keeping him and her or her up at night about how to approach this? What are some of the things that you've seen that have made the biggest impact, either been a disruptor in organizational design or how we manage our people and talent? Is there one thing that you would say think about this and make a shift in your organization around this are there things you've seen really get traction yeah i i mean i don't even think traction's difficult it's just you get the right people in the room talking about the right thing this is rare right mm. we do not get executive teams focusing on the gender opportunity of their business mm. for more than half an hour of their entire lives. So it's just a piece they're not focusing on and it's not on the agenda. So the biggest transformer we find is the quality of the conversation. Is to kickstart, just get it on the agenda um, for a substantive amount of time with the right data, which does not mean sending in your most senior woman who tends to be the head of HR yes. to tell the business case to a bunch of guys nodding you know, appreciatively. That's not what I mean. It's actually having an argument with your peers about does this Why? matter yeah. and do I get it? Because behind the um, the ignorance and lack of awareness is, is a pretty big zone of discomfort right mm -hmm. now, right? It's not like men are super skilled at these levels about what's this issue about? What's Me Too gonna hit me with? Yeah. Am I gonna appear on the front page of the next newspaper? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of fear and discomfort and I think it's not helped by accusatory exactly compliance bias, you know, compliance yeah. or or you know bias kind of yeah. language this is not the issue right now yeah. the issue is let's get it on the agenda let's frame it as a business opportunity not a problem and let's get smart guys educated and aware in okay how can we manage this really well and they can mm. it's not rocket science yeah. but, but it's it does having take... that front end the quality of the conversation interesting yeah. when you said sort of close the door because certainly what I'm seeing amongst a lot of senior executives you mentioned me too there's a, a level of self-censoring in the conversation now because men are anxious about getting it wrong and you know well okay go to an unconscious biasing and then become even more worried about what they do on an average day being you know consciously incompetent and not necessarily um, being able to have grown up conversations even with their senior women who are often peers um, so what would you suggest for they know if you you've mentioned that as well that there is a level of anxiety but most people 
aren't experimental and bold when they're feeling threatened. Um, what advice would you have for either women wanting to have the conversation or for senior groups of men to be able to have a business-based conversation around why this is an important issue for us to address as an organisation? I mean, I, I think data and and information yeah. are our best friend um, mm -hmm. and fact-based respectful conversations. conversations. So, I mean, we usually go in first by doing an audit, both qualitative and mm -hmm. quantitative. So let's look at where the numbers are, where they've been, what has this company been doing for the last five years on these. And then we interview um, all the senior men and a representative sampling of women across the organization and senior women, and then give back in, in anonymous, you know, yep. conversations, yes. um, which are then mirrored back to the leadership team by gender. So you can see, what are the men saying? What are the women saying? Is it different? Are there huge gaps in perception? Mm -hmm. Which there, there usually are. And how can we start learning what the perception of the other side yeah. might be? Um, and then I think just allowing these guys to have some time to learn. They need, in our experience, a little bit of time to mm -hmm. get the numbers, get the facts, hear these different things. And it's not enough, in my mind, to just get the guys to listen to the women. Mm -hmm. The real issue in this 21st century is what are the men in your organization saying? Because when you start trying to push gender balance, what's the reaction going to mm -hmm. be? Because if all you're doing is instigating a future backlash, yes. you've lost the plot. Yeah. So what you want to do is understand both perceptions and navigate through them in as gender balanced and neutral and inclusive a way, yeah. which is why all these you know, women's networks and organizations, they're past their due date. Yeah. That was great in the 20th century, yeah. which was all about the rise of women. But the 21st century is about how do we get men to adapt to that rise? Mm -hmm. How do we accompany them, educate yeah. them, you know, make them not feel threatened or yeah. competing and defensive. Yeah. Now we want conversations together in safe places mm -hmm. where they can look, you know, express um, they're, they're all married to us, and they're all—they're yeah. all got little ones like us yeah. at home. They are very engaged in this. Yeah. If we would only give them yeah. the place to do it, and I think and that's the big shift, isn't it? From yeah. even twenty years ago, that there was some notion that it was—you know—the boys keeping the girls out of the you know boardroom, and the girls needed to understand the rules of the game. I think in the twenty-first century, it's about grown-up conversations where people don't have to feel defensive or threatened or in their corner. Except we don't have enough of that yet. Yeah. We're still kind of tiptoeing our yeah. way there. Um, and, yeah. and because I think a lot of the efforts we have done have been branded by women, for women, mm -hmm. about women, and women like them. We like yeah. this stuff. And it can be potentially quite excluding to the And we hold to on to them. Yeah. Um, and don't want this to let the guys in when um, I think that's, yeah, it's going to be where it's at. Yeah. It's really um, cross-gender conversations. Interesting. Um, so while we wrap up, Aviva, what advice would you have for women? You've talked about organizations. What advice would you have for women who are embarking on their executive careers and uh, looking at the, their future? Is there any advice you would have for them about how they might do that? 
Yeah, I think it's really helpful to have some awareness of this whole gender conversation and not only from the women's perspective. So the advantage now is there are a lot of men, a lot of men, there are some men starting to write about this. Mm -hmm. So I think familiarizing yourself with the actual facts of the balance in whatever organization you're in, whatever sector you're in. I mean, most women, you know, have some idea of this, but actually owning and understanding the data and then being pretty tactical about identifying potential mentors, um, champions, allies, people who might be interested in this and becoming influential without necessarily fronting it. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't always do your career a great deal of good to um, be the feminist on the... Yeah, and be the banner waver. Be the banner mm. waver. But I think, especially if you're young, and this is a future-oriented um, thing, is getting really good at neutralizing the topic again and mm-hmm. sharing it. So being a real gender balance advocate, advocating for balance, balancing your own teams both ways, male and female, mm. which is something women sometimes replicate they start mm. staffing up on um on females on females because they're more comfortable with them so really finding the value and creating the conversations mm-hmm. across genders i think is a leadership skill that both men and women if we get good at being what i call gender bilingual yes being very comfortable with a hundred percent of the mm-hmm. talent and also understanding that clients and customers men and women may have slightly different needs and getting good at identifying what the differences might be in it and using them for business growth, then you're on to something. Saleable Fantastic. and replicable. Saleable and replicable. <laughs> Love it. Aviva, it's been such a pleasure to meet you today. Thank you so much for taking the time and for your great wisdom. Um, Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, Chief Executive of 21st. Many thanks. Pleasure being here at a lovely spot too. Thanks, Aviva. Thanks for listening to Grit in the Oyster. Join me for our next conversation coming soon, available on SoundCloud and iTunes. And stay in touch, Penny at pennydevolk.com.